0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it you can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: We're in chapter 17. We skipped a little bit at the end of chapter 16, if you're you know paying attention. Uh, because Jesus is talking directly with his disciples about things pertaining directly with those 11 men, things that they're going to see and experience. And so we're, we're just skimming over that. But the big thing that's important for us to take note of is at the end of chapter 16, the disciples say, finally, we understand what you're saying. Finally, we believe that you are in fact sent from God. So think about that. A, a three, almost four years of them being with Jesus and the night of his arrest, the, the, like, you know, six plus ish hours before his death, they finally say, we actually believe that you are the son of God. <laughs> that's uh, that's not deathbed, you know, confession, you know, like what is, but it just wasn't their death. It was his. And so, uh, so we're turning the page to chapter 17 and in chapter 17, we are going to read we're going to walk through what is called the high priestly prayer some people call it that and we're going to see why what, what what's a priestly prayer well priests in the old testament were there to intercede to god on behalf of the people because in the old covenant people couldn't talk directly to god they had to intercede uh the, the priest had to intercede for them to god making the offerings making the sacrifices etc and so in chapter 17, you have Jesus himself praying to the Father. The whole chapter, it's a prayer. And what's so cool is he's praying specifically for his disciples and things that they're going to experience, things that they're going to see here in the next you know, several hours. But then he prays for some other people. And we'll get to that because I think it's a big deal. Before we jump into it, um, I want us to get thinking, because here in just a few verses we're going to encounter this, What does it really mean to actually know God? You know, if you had asked me, you know, 10, 20 years ago, what's the purpose of Christianity? I would have said to you to know God and to make him known. Anybody ever heard that sort of uh, uh, monarchy or whatever it's called, that little um, cliche to know him and to make him known? That's the purpose of Christianity. Um, Well, that's great and all, but how do you do that? Like, how do you really get to know God? How do we get to know Him? Uh, I know how I get to know my wife, I know how I, get, how I get to know you, but how do we get to know Him? And quite honestly, what we're gonna look at today is the pinnacle of this division that we have between religious Christianity and I think uh, biblical Christianity or, or actual Christianity, truth Christianity. Because it comes down to the difference of how do you actually get to know God. There was a uh, thinking in the um, Jewish culture of they were convinced of a certain way in which you got to know God. It it shouldn't take you much uh, brain power to figure out what that method was. We'll, We'll go over it in a second. But Jesus is turning that on its head here in this one chapter as he's praying for them that they would actually get to know. God in this new way, in this new covenant that he's come to enact. So keep thinking as we're reading this, how do I really get to know him? What is What is getting to know him? And more importantly, how do I get to know him? Because there's competing methods of how to get to know God. One that leads to true knowledge of him, another that leads to a feeling, a sense of knowing him, but it's actually death. So, Chapter 17, starting in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, these things being chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, because it's all one meal, as we've been talking about. He spoke these things, and lifting uh, up his eyes to heaven, he said, so here's the beginning of the prayer. He said, Father, the hour has come. So all of this preparation, I mean, think of all of eternity past has been leading up to this moment. Paul actually says, or the writer of Hebrews actually says that the death of Jesus, that's what he's talking about, the the hour that's come, the death of Jesus is actually the culmination of the ages. Let's think about that. The culmination of the ages was, see, we think it's yet future for us, we think, well, when all is said and done. Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, the culmination of all ages was the cross. See, there's something that happened 2,000 years ago in the spirit, in, in the kingdom of heaven, that, that we can't even begin to comprehend for him to say it's the culmination of the ages. The hour has come for the culmination of the ages. And he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify You, this word glorify, we're going to see it several times. That's why I have it in red, and we're going to talk about what it means, what glorify means in this context, the word glory, at least in the Hebrew, which is, you know, Aramaic, what they're, you know, more than likely speaking is written in Greek, but the word glory simply means weightiness, okay, heaviness. And so if you, even now, um, I was at a customer's house and they need a new um, drain in their sink, and I said, well, there's a couple options. There's a plastic one and then there's a metal one. And they said, well, which is better? And I just handed it to them. And, and the plastic, you know, you could, you know, just like it's light as a feather. The metal, the solid brass one, is weightiness. And so if we were to use this word glory in that, in that way, in that vernacular, we would say that the brass one is more glorious than the plastic one. That's all glory really means. Weighty. We've sort of churchified it to just say, well, glory. What does that even mean? We have a word that we don't even know what it means. It simply means weightiness, substance. We got that? And so what Jesus is saying, reveal the weightiness of who I really am. Because up until this point, Jesus is just seen by the world as what? As a homeless carpenter's son from Nazareth. But there's a weightiness that they don't know. And he's saying, reveal that. Glorify your son as I glorify you as I reveal your weightiness to this world. Verse two, even as you gave him the, the, the son talking about himself, um, authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given to him, he may give eternal life. So here's how the father and the son are glorified. Here's how their weightiness is revealed by the father, giving the son a dominion over the world, people, and then the Son giving the people the ability to have this thing called eternal life. So the Father, is, His weightiness is revealed, and the Son's weightiness, substance is revealed by giving something to people, eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? What is He talking about? What we forget all too often is that salvation is not simply bad people becoming good people, or people who struggle to do what's right, trying harder to do what's right. Salvation is actually the the uh, the, the uh, restoration of the Holy Spirit himself into mankind. Back in the garden, the Holy Spirit was in man, in Adam and Eve, it was breathed into him. But when Adam and Eve sinned, because of that sin, the Holy Spirit was taken away from him. And they died that day, died spiritually, physically, many years later. But there was a promise given in Genesis chapter 3 or uh, 4, whatever it was, that there would come a day where a descendant, a seed of the woman would actually reverse this curse. Then the curse now would be that the enemy, Satan himself, would be crushed and that man himself, man once again, would have this life within him. So eternal life, salvation, is the restoration of the Holy Spirit within us. And so he explains this, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. If you ever wondered, you know, what is eternal life? Well, when Jesus says this is eternal life, we should, you know, listen up and, and, and maybe highlight it and read it again. And if we're intellectual, maybe read it slower and read it again. And he says, this is eternal life, that they, who's they, the people that he has dominion over, the world, may know you. Here's eternal life that people who have not known God since the garden would actually have, again, the opportunity to know him, to know him, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a couple of different Greek words for know, K-N-O-W, and this one that Jesus uses is, in fact, the, the word that, it doesn't just simply mean know facts about him. But it actually means it, the emphasis is to know it uh, personally, intimately, an individual, somebody or something. And so we know a lot of facts about different people. Right. Um, but how many people do we truly know personally? Yeah, I know a lot of stuff about a lot of sports guys and politic politicians and, you know, figures in our culture. But do I know, like this know, experientially, personally, any of those people? Of course not. There's very few people that I intimately, personally, relationally know. But there's a lot of people know about, right? And so what Jesus is saying is eternal life is knowing God in an intimate, personal, relational Manner. It's my understanding, and I've told you before, and I'll always say this, that I'm not an a, a, a ancient Hebrew scholar, but it's my understanding through my uh, efforts and uh, study that knowing God in this way of intimacy with the creator was never a promise of the old covenant. Never a promise. There was never a promise in the old covenant law that if you kept the laws, then you would get to know God. Never promise. There were promises that your kneading bowl would never be without flour. There was promises that your sheep would multiply. There was earthly promises if you kept them, but there was also curses and all were cursed because no one kept the law. But rule-keeping and law-obeying were never a means by which you could get to know God in this personal, intimate way. And this is where we're going to start to see some, some rub. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if I were to preach this message in any church that I've ever been a part of in the past, I'd get fired. Because this is so counterintuitive, what Jesus is about to say in chapter 17, so counterintuitive to our religious concept of Christianity. So... The law never promised knowledge of God, promised a material blessing from God, but never knowledge, intimacy with him. In fact, in Romans, Paul, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven, I'll put it up on the screen. He actually tells us very plainly what a knowledge of the law actually gives us knowledge of. Before we put it up on the screen, does anybody want to guess? What does uh, life under the law give us a knowledge of? Does it give us a knowledge of God, or does it give us a knowledge of something else? A knowledge of sin. It's exactly what Paul says. Don't take my word for it. See, don't, don't, don't fire me, fire Paul. But this is what Paul says. In Romans 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, of course not. May it never be. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would have not come to know what? Sin, except through the law. So his study of the law taught him who? Sin. He came to know sin through the law, not God, not mercy not grace not the heart of the Creator but he got to know who through being under the law sin now tell me does that not sound a little strange to our sort of religious thinking sure it does because I don't want I thought that the knowledge uh, or studying or examining or being under the commandments would be a good thing for me to teach me about God if I want to really get to know God I should study the law to know the law and don't let it depart from my mouth, Joshua 1.8. Let's get to know this law so we get to know God. Well, that's not Paul's testimony. His testimony was, when I studied the law, I got to know sin, not God. In fact, I, here, here we go. This is Paul, not Walt. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, of the 613 laws, which one is, thou shalt not covet? Of what group is that? It says one of the big ten. So Paul is saying that the ten commandments did teach him something. What did it teach him? It taught him sin. Now, is the law sinful? (laughs) May it never be. The law is good. The law is perfect. It's perfect at teaching Paul what? Sin. And that's a good thing. But not if we think that teaching the law is going to teach us Jesus, teach us God. Now, can we look at the law and see even shadows within the law of the Christ to come? Yes, we can. But that's not putting ourselves under the law so that we can try to live up to the law. That's looking at the law and seeing, wow, Jesus is even revealed to us through the commandments, but not a means by which we, if we did these commandments, we'd really get to know God more and more. Paul says that under the law, he got to know God sin. Now look at verse 8. If you think that wasn't controversial enough. He says, "But sin, that he's got getting to know through the commandments, sin taking opportunity through the commandment, which commandment? Thou shalt not what? Covet, which I don't remember what number is that, 9 8, something like that. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. So the law Gave opportunity, read it backwards, the law, the commandment gave opportunity for sin to produce coveting. Because if there was no covenant, if there was no law, sin is what? Dead. That sounds very, very controversial. Can you imagine Paul staying on staff at a church in America, most churches in America, preaching this? I would think not. But the commandment, thou shalt not covet, one of the ten, gave opportunity for sin to produce coveting of every kind in the life of Saul of Tarsus when he was a Jew under the law. So here's the false thinking when we talk about eternal life and knowing God. Because that's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that people get to know God. Well, here's the false thinking. Here's what we should not default to that the knowledge of God's law produces a knowledge of God. That's what we should not default to. That's what we tend to default to. If I want to get to know God, then I need to get to know His law. But the knowledge of the law cannot produce a knowledge of God. Hebrews says that it's weak and useless at doing this. The knowledge of God's law, according to Paul, Romans 7, simply produces a knowledge of sin. And then sin takes opportunity to sin, the opportunity the law gives it. So the Ten Commandments, according to Paul, do not teach us God. We don't get to know Him by knowing the law. The Ten Commandments teach us sin. Which, is, is that, so is the law evil? No way. And God gave the law to the Jews during that time period to drive them somewhere, to drive them to the end of themselves because of a revelation of sin that they might cry out to the Savior. So the law is good. But it was not to teach us about God, but to teach us about sin. And I say us. It really wasn't given to us Gentiles anyways. So what does teach us God? If, if it's not the law, if it's not the Ten Commandments that teach us God, then what does teach us God? What is it that we put ourselves under to get to learn, get to know Him? Well, God has a plan for that too. And I'm really quickly going to read a sh- few verses out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah was written at the worst time of Israel's history. The Babylonians were coming in to conquer Jerusalem. The temple's being destroyed. The Shekinah glory of God is leaving. That's what Lamentations is all about. And the the, 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 the they're so hungry, they're eating stuff. They shouldn't be eating. I don't mean like, you know, pigs, like, like people. It's just, it's a terrible time. You read it yourself. It's a terrible time in the life of Israel. And in the midst of this terrible time, God reveals to Jeremiah a day that's going to come. And this is what he says. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So I'm going to do a whole new way of relating, a whole new way of, of, of relating to people, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he talks about this new covenant, what it's like and what it's not like. First of all, he says, this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which covenant is he talking about when he took them by the hand out of Egypt they walked across the red sea into where the mount the sinai peninsula walked right to the mount sinai what did god give at mount sinai the 10 commandments the law he's saying this new commandment this new covenant it's nothing it's nothing like the Ten Commandments. It's nothing like the Mosaic Law. It was, it was my covenant, God says, which they broke, although I was their husband. And we've talked about this in the past. Jesus, this is God's declaration of divorce. They divorced him. He's recognizing that Israel divorced him. I was their husband, but they broke the covenant. We are husband-wife no longer. But this is the covenant that I will make. So it's nothing like what I did before. So if we think the new covenant is kind of like the Ten Commandments, sort of made a little bit better, made a little bit more possible, we got to remove that thinking. The new is nothing like the old. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And now look at this. I will put my law, I will put my desires, I will put... He, clarif- he, he sp- spells this out specifically in Ezekiel 36. I will put me within them and I will put me on their hearts. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, they will not teach again, each man, his neighbor, each man, his brother saying, know the Lord. They will not teach. You need to get to know the Lord which is what the whole desire of the old covenant was. Let's try to get to know him more, but nobody could because the law couldn't produce a knowledge of him. Paul says the law produced a knowledge of sin. In fact, there was only one man one time a year who ever could even go into his presence, the high priest. There wasn't a knowledge of God, and he said in this new covenant, there will be a knowledge of me. You'll get to know me, and I will know you. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. So no matter who you are, you will know me if you are, believe me. How is that possible? That 's our question, right? How does knowledge of Him happen? How is this possible? And he explains it right here, FOR. I 've told you a bunch, i 'll tell you a bunch more. when you see FOR, that helps us explain. it helps us understand. he 's explaining what was just said. Here's how this knowledge of him happens. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So here's how you're going to know me. You're going to know me because I'm going to do something that forgives you to where I know your sin no more. So forgiveness is if you want to talk about steps to knowing God. If we do not believe If we do not accept our complete and total 100% forgiveness of all sin for all time, then we're not going to get to know him. Because the knowledge of him is a result of his forgiveness of our sins and knowing our sins no more. Because what happens if we think he's still holding our sins against us? Then we are convinced of a separation, of 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 a judgment, of a distance between us and he. Well, the wages of sin is not distance. The wages of sin is not tension in a relationship with God, which is what I used to believe. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death, not distance. It's termination, not tension. And so what God is saying, I'm going to do something. He doesn't specify what it is. He's not talking about, he doesn't talk about a son. He doesn't talk about a cross. He doesn't talk about those things here in the Old Testament. It was all a mystery, but he says, there's going to come a day where I'm going to remember their sins No more, And that's how they're going to get to know me. So as I read this, knowing God doesn't come from the old covenant, doesn't come from Mount Sinai. Knowing God doesn't come from a better understanding or application of the Ten Commandments. Knowing God comes from the reality of a new covenant where he forgives, where he remembers our sins no more. And he places his very own self, his very own spirit within us. And this, my friends, is what Jesus was on the doorsteps of doing. This is the night of his arrest. The very next chapter, 18, Judah shows up. I mean, we're talking minutes before his arrest. Jesus is praying to the father that as a result of what he's gonna do, the world would see how weighty the son is, how weighty the father is by giving them knowledge of him, something that hadn't happened since the garden. And in fact, our knowledge of him now is better than their knowledge because we have experienced a grace that Adam and Eve never could experience. And this is what Jesus is ushering in the new covenant with his death, resulting in the complete total forgiveness of sins for all people, for all times. And for those who believe it, who believe Jesus did it, the very Holy spirit of God is restored into them never to leave. Why would the spirit leave? The spirit would leave if there's sin on our account. So, The Spirit of God will only leave an individual when there's sin on that individual's account. Well, if God remembers our sins no more, then who's never leaving? Just do the math and we celebrate. Now, what if you don't believe? What if someone doesn't believe that God has totally forgiven them of all their sins? Maybe it's you. It's, It's okay. We're still friends. But what if it's you? What if you struggle with believing that God has actually forgiven you of all your sins? How will you know Him? How can you know Him? If you, what if you try to thin out the 613 laws of Moses down to four or five, you know, let's thin them out a little bit. Let's do what Jesus never said not to do. And we just thin them down to four or five and we set our minds on those to accomplish. Will we then get to know God? Well, what does the scripture say? What does Paul say we get to know by our mindset on law, even three or four, five, one or two? We get to know sin. Now, think with the pro- about the prodigal son. Which of those two sons really got to know the heart of the father? Was it the prodigal son that got to know the heart of the father? Or was it the son that stayed and never left the father? Which one really got to know the heart of the father? It was the prodigal. Now, is this an endorsement to go out and have wild living with prostitutes and they end up eating pigs pig food and, and you know run back home? No, not at all. This is not an endorsement to go out and sin. It's an endorsement for us to wake up and see what's causing the sin in our lives, what's causing us to sin. What's causing us to sin, according to the scripture, according to Paul, is that the law living underneath the concept of I need to do these things in order to be okay with God, living underneath this is what gives opportunity for sin To come to the foreground and be exceedingly sinful. The new covenant of God's total forgiveness, of God's total grace, of remembering our sins no more. The promise here from Jeremiah. This is what allows us to know the Lord. Getting back to John. So he's talking about knowing him. I want to glorify you. You glorify me by us giving them this life, the Holy Spirit. That's going to result in them knowing you and then he keeps on going verse four i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you have given me to do so the hours come i'm ready to go now for father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you before the world was which we just sang about which is really cool which is what john starts the book off in the beginning not 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 at his birth, but in the beginning of all beginnings, whenever that beginning was, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, talking about Jesus. And so there was a pre-existence of Jesus before he became a babe. He always was, and this glory, this weightiness of him existed before he was a baby, before he came in the, the womb of Mary. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They've kept your word. What does this mean? They've kept your word. What is the word? Well, we would say, well, the word is the Bible. But if it is, then what um, are we saying that the these disciples have kept the law? He said, you've kept the word. I just can't wrap my head around that because we know them. I'm Peter. Next chapter is going to lie three times. He uh, kept your word until tomorrow morning, (laughs) until later tonight. He's not talking about the law. He's not talking about the, the old Testament writings. What is the word? What is the word that God has given uh, uh, Jesus to give to the people? And it's the word of faith in Jesus, believing that Jesus did come from the father. And and that's what they just said in John 16, just a few verses before they said, we now know that you know all things and that you have no need. There's no need for us to question you by this. We believe that you have come from God. That's the word. They believe what Jesus has been telling them in verse seven. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is actually from you. See, he's referencing their faith and belief in him everything that is mine is yours. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, I've told them about faith in me, the words you gave me about believing, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, which is exactly their testimony in chapter 16. And they believed that you sent me, I ask, verse 9, on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are truly yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So there's this, yours is mine, mine is yours, talking to the Father. There's a oneness, there's a sharedness, there's a unity between the Father and the Son that he's talking about and he's referencing. And it's important because we're going to see this come to uh, 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 mean something very, very significantly here in a second. But he's been talking about this where I'm going to go back here. I've got, I think I have it in red a few times. If not, I should have if I forgot. Yeah, here we go. Glory. Glorify me with the glory which you have. And I, ref- I told you a second ago that the word glory simply means weightiness. Well, let's ask the question. What is The weightiness, what is this glory that you think Jesus is referencing that the Father has given the Son? What is the weightiness that He's been given Him? Because, I'll I'll, I'll get ahead of myself, because Jesus is about to say, the very same glory that you have given Me, I am now giving them. So what is that glory that Jesus might be referencing And think of the context. He's just saying everything that's yours is mine and mine is yours. There's a oneness, a togetherness between us. The glory you gave me, I'm giving them. What do we think this weightiness is? The Holy Spirit? Very, very uh, real, very possible, very... He certainly does give us that. But did the Father give the Son the Holy Spirit? We say yes, because remember the baptism? The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. His righteousness. Relationship. Relationship. If we were playing the hot cold game, that's definitely where I'm sitting in the hot, like, relationship. Let's think of this, whatever is yours is mine, and mine is yours. Communion. Communion. Oneness. Intimacy. Knowledge. Isn't that what we've been talking about? Knowing him. The glory that the Father has given the Son is the fact that the Son knows the Father. This, If you look at the f- Son, you have seen the who? Father, because the Son knows the Father. The Son is God, as the Father is God. And so here's what Jesus, I'm just going to cut the chase for time's sake. What I hear Jesus saying is, here's the glory you gave me. You. You and me. As one. And guess what? I'm going to now do through my death, burial, and resurrection. The very same glory, oneness with you, I'm going to now give to them. So awesome. Now let's keep reading. Um, uh, this glory, all right, of being one with the Father has been disguised, it's been veiled, it's been hidden from the world. But one day, this glory between the Father and the Son was going to be revealed. And Jesus is looking forward to that. So I'm submitting to you that when we hear Jesus talk about this glory, this weightiness, I think he's talking about this oneness, this intimacy, this togetherness, this, this uh, um, uh, uh, intimacy with the Father himself. Verse 11, let's keep going. I'm no, longer, I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves, talking about the disciples, still are in the world. Remember, he's praying for his 11 disciples, one has already gone off. And I came to, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be, what is that? One. Now let's just pause here for a second. That they may be one. Jesus is praying that they may be one. Okay. Well, that could be interpreted a couple different ways. I'll give you two. That they may be unified within themselves, that they'll get along. There's a lot of strong personalities in the disciples you know, you got Bartholomew. He's always, you know, the go-getter. Then you got Peter. He's always the smart aleck. You got there's a lot of personalities. And then you got James. They always pick on because he's short. You know, James the Lesser. You know, we got we got all these personalities. Just let them get along with each other. Hey, that could be what Jesus is saying. I used to believe that's what he was talking about. But let's really evaluate that. Is Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead so that the disciples get along with each other? I don't think so. Maybe. I don't think so. And I love how he clarifies it. May they be one, look at this, even as we are. How is the Father and the Son one? They are one in fellowship, in intimacy, in togetherness. And he is praying that those disciples would be as one with the Father and the Son as the Son is one with the Father, and the Father is one with the Son. That's the glory. Now you say, well, uh, maybe, but probably not, Walt. I mean, that's that's kind of out there to think that these disciples in their spirit, in their new heart, in the new covenant are going to be as equally one with God as Jesus is one with God, and that the Father is one with Jesus. It's kind of out there. Okay, let's keep reading. Let me make sure I didn't miss anything in my notes. Yeah. All right. So, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me, in your authority, in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, talking about Judas, so that the scriptures would be revealed. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in them. So I'm saying all this, I'm praying this to you, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do tomorrow, and then be raised from the dead in three days from tomorrow, so that my joy, the joy I, Jesus, have may be complete, may be full in them. Let's take a time out. What has Jesus been alluding to? I think pretty directly, but what is at least indirectly been alluding to is his great joy, his great comfort, his great delight, whatness with the Father, oneness, intimacy. He's he's excited about the day that he is going to be revealed for being one with God, as God. He's excited about it. And he is saying, "May, may my joy, what I'm excited about, be actually now in them. This oneness that I have, the delight of my heart, oneness with the Father, I want them to have that same delight. Oneness with you. So cool. My joy made full in themselves. Jesus' joy is union with the Father and Jesus wants that same joy to be experienced by his disciples. The same joy. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they, these disciples, are not of the world. Even as I'm not of the world. But I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And here's verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Couple of big churchy words we gotta be careful of here. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what up until this point has the word, word, been really referencing? The message that the Father gave the Son to give the people, the message of faith in Him, belief in Him, reliance upon the Son, that the Son is from the Father. And He's saying that's the reality. The reality is that I am from you, I am of you, whatever you have, I have. We are one together, no separation. That's the reality. Truth, it just simply means reality. That's what's real, And he says, sanctify them in this reality of me being one with you. Sanctify, it's another big churchy word that we have come to sort of understand only in certain concepts, but sanctify just simply means to set apart, set them apart, set them apart from other people in the fact that they really understand the truth. The truth is that I am in you and you are in me and we are one together, set them apart in this reality. And he says in verse 18, As you sent me into this world, I have also sent them for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they, may themse- that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. So we tend to think of this word sanctify, sanctification, sanctif- sanctified, sanctified. We tend to think of this word as this process by which people who sin a lot, sin less and become more and more holy. But that's not, if that's what we're thinking here, then we're totally off because that's not at all the context. Because if our definition of sanctify means tomorrow I'm going to sin a little bit less than I did today. And so I'm becoming more holy. I'm becoming more sanctified. Then put that definition into this sentence right here. I, Jesus, sanctify myself. Come on are you agreeing are you saying that jesus is sinning a little bit less tomorrow than he is today that's not sancti- sanctify sanctification simply is setting apart so if we were to take this chair and pull it away from all those chairs we are sanctifying this chair we're setting it apart from those chairs That's all it means in its purest definition and so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am setting myself apart. Apart from whom? First of all, apart from the living, because he's going to die. So he's setting himself apart from the living tomorrow. This time tomorrow, I'm going to be dead. But then he's also setting himself apart from all who are going to what? Who All who die. By what? By being raised back from the dead. He said, well, there's other people that rose from the dead. You know, he, he raised a couple people from the dead. I think the disciples did a few. But how many people died and came back to life... And in, in therefore ended the sin account of humanity and then gave the Holy Spirit to those who believe. See, this is Jesus setting himself apart. This is Jesus. This is, this is Jesus being seen no longer as the plastic drain, but as the solid brass drain. He is sanctifying himself, setting himself apart from what is common, all those plastic drains, to something much more weighty. And that word for weighty, what's the word in the Bible that means just weightiness? Glory. Glory. This is what he's talking about. I'm setting myself apart from the world to show who I really am. And by doing that, they themselves will be set apart into this reality of new life in me. Now, before we continue, whom, whom, who, whom has Jesus been praying for? For whom has Jesus been praying? His disciples. The 11. Absolutely. Now, primarily that they would get to know God through the new covenant of God's grace. For the knowledge of the law brings the knowledge of sin. But the knowledge of God's grace brings the knowledge of God himself. Because remember how John began the book? That Jesus Christ himself is full of grace and reality. Grace and truth. So he's saying let's get to know him As he is in this covenant of grace, holding no sins against us. But in verse 20, the very next verse, Jesus changes the people whom he is praying for. He starts praying for a different group of people in verse 20. Let's check this out. I'm going to ask you a question after we read verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. So everything I've prayed so far, it's not just for these 11. Now look at this. But I'm also asking for those who believe in me through their word. Who is it? Who's the those? Who are the those that are going to come to faith in Jesus as a result of the testimony, the word of these 11 disciples? Everybody go like this. Ah, you. And everyone else who has come to faith in him since this began. So we're about to read Jesus praying for you. Did you know he prayed for you? Well, here it is. I do not ask on behalf of these only, but for those who believe in me through their word. Who is this? It's us. Us who believe. Not just us in this room, but any. Over all of the past 2,000 years who have come to believe in him. That they, who's the they? They are those who believe because of what the disciples have done that they may all be one. All right, here's Jesus's prayer that we all link arms, you know, and we can even do it that way, you know, and sing kumbaya around the fire and just get along. That's what he's praying for. Unity, oneness, let's just get along. Maybe, and I think we can get along and we should get along, but I think it's bigger than that. And he explains it, and I'm so glad he does. Even as, here's the definition of oneness. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Here's what I'm praying, God. I'm praying that they will have the same oneness with us that we have with us. That they will be, just as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us us. This oneness that he's praying for isn't, hey, let's just sort of shed our differences, you know, you you say that's red, I say it's green, let's just shed our differences and let's just be, you know, Jesus prayed that we would get along. Hey, let's get along. But that's not what he's praying for here. He is praying that as a result of what he's doing by inaugurating the new covenant, something that hasn't happened since the Garden of Eden would happen, and that is that you would be in them and they would be in you, they being the Father and the Son, that they would be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The reality of our oneness with him, not just oneness with each other, I think oneness with each other is a byproduct of the reality of our oneness with him, but our oneness with him is what declares the truth to the world. That he is, Jesus is from the Father. Unity, sure, that's great, but it's him, them in us, and us in them, so that the world may know that you believe, that you sent me. Now we're back to this glory word. What does this glory mean? The weightiness, the weightiness of oneness with you. The glory which you have given me, weightiness, the oneness that you've given me. I now am giving to them so that they may be one just as we are one. So Jesus is praying that as a result of what He is going to do on the cross and in His resurrection, those who would believe in Him would be as equally one with the Father and the Son and let's not leave out the Holy Spirit that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one with them. Now, let's just be honest. We've got a few more verses quickly to cover. But let's just be honest. How many of us woke up this morning with the fresh realization that I am as one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one with themselves? Probably not. Probably not. And what I hear Jesus saying, here's the big deal, that we're going to struggle getting to know him until we get to know our oneness with him. Because what's keeping us from embracing this oneness with him, it's a mindset on the flesh. It's a mindset on the law. It's a a thinking that I can get to know him by obedience and repentance and, and faithfulness and commitment. Hey, be as obedient and as faithful and committed as, as, as you can. Fantastic. But that isn't the means by which you get to know Him. You get to know Him by being one with Him and a revelation of your union with Him. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. How many of us have prayed, Father, may you be glorified in my life. Jesus, be glorified in my life. I don't think that's a bad prayer. Don't get me wrong. But we say that a lot. Be glorified in our meeting. Be glorified with my day. Well, here's the reality. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. But here's the reality. Jesus is praying that the glory that he was given be given to you. Wow. Oneness with the Father. I in them. And you and me. I mean, can he be more specific here? I and them, and you and me. Who's the them? Those who will believe. That's you. That's me. I and them, and them, and in you, Father, in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Unity with whom? Unity with Him. Perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. He says that again. And loved them even as you have loved me. This word perfected, it throws people off. Because we read this word perfected, and we naturally, with our religious minds, we think, okay, well, I'm definitely not perfect. You know, I did this thing yesterday, and the day before that, I did this very same thing, and probably tomorrow I'm going to do it again. I'm definitely not perfect in my behavior. Well, see, we automatically think we go to behavior, to performance. This word perfected, it just simply means complete. It means finished, completed. May they be complete, in their union with me, with us. So what I hear Jesus saying is may they, as a result of my death, burial, and resurrection, not only receive oneness, this glory that I have, I'm giving to them, may they not only re- realize this, but they, may they all- also realize the completeness that they now have, completeness, lacking nothing. Why did Israel commit themselves to the law when when they did try to commit themselves to the law? Because they felt as though they lacked. They sought the material blessings and favor from God. But Jesus is saying that union with him is what actually makes us complete. And Paul echoes this in Colossians 2. You should read it. He says that in him we have been made complete. How are we complete? You say, I don't feel complete. How can you say that my union with him by faith in him makes me complete? It's because we are joined, united, one with the one who is complete. He's complete and he lacks nothing and we've been made one with him. If I understand Jesus correctly, which I may be wrong, but we have been joined together as one with the one who is complete and lacks nothing. If that's true, if we are joined to him, the one who lacks nothing, then what do we lack? Nothing. We often, at least I can speak for myself, turn to sin because we feel as though we lack something. We feel as though we lack love. We lack acceptance, we lack affection, we lack attention, etc. And so we turn to sin because we feel as though we lack. But what if we had a revelation of how complete we are, lacking nothing because we're joined to the one who lacks nothing. And if we turn to the law to make up this feeling of lacking something, then all we're doing is we're empowering sin itself to be more exceedingly sinful through us. But what if we didn't turn to the law to curb sinning? What if we didn't turn to the law to curb feelings of inadequacy, but instead we turn to the reality of our completion in Christ? And I've heard it before, and I'll just throw this out again, but David loved the law. I mean, look at David. A man after God's own heart, he loved the law. He delighted in the law. Yeah, let's look at David. Remember what David did as he loved the law? He fathered a child by a woman that wasn't his wife, And then he murdered the man who was the husband of the woman. And then he lied about it all to try to cover it all up. Yeah, let's look to David. David, if David was honest today, knowing what we know now, he would have said what Paul said, because Paul was placed under law and became knowledgeable of sin as a result of the law. Our completion is not found in in turning to law to complete us or turning to sin to complete us. It's realizing that it's our faith in him and him alone that has completed us by union with him. Look, I have, uh, un- unfortunately, I have already sufficient knowledge of sin. I don't want nor need any further knowledge of sin. And so I do not want to place myself under any law to live. I know enough and I cling to Jesus Who has made me complete so that the world will know that he has sent me two more verses and we're done. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Let's digest that quickly. I want them to be with me where I am so they can see the glory. What's the glory? Oneness with him, togetherness, intimacy with the father. I want the people who believe in me to be able to see it, not with their eyeballs, but with their heart. I want them to experience our oneness. Why? Why do you think that is? Because he he, he, he says he has a four here, but honestly, this doesn't help me a whole lot. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. But why? Why does he want us to see the oneness between the Father and the Son? Because that's easier to see, let's be honest. It's easier for us to see the oneness between the Father and the Son than it is to see the oneness between you and the Father. Let's just be honest, right? And me and the Father, right? Why does Jesus want us to see that? Why does he want us to taste it, to touch it, to feel it? To know him? To know him. So, so the world can see that. So the world can see that? Okay. Think think along these lines, which is that's totally right on. But let me take it a step further. I think it's because it's so difficult for us to see our own oneness with him that he wants us to see their oneness with each other. And by faith, we come to believe, wow, as one as I can clearly see that, I clearly see the Father and the Son one. And the clearer I see that by faith, I believe that I am as one as that. May they see our oneness because our oneness is their oneness. Because that's the glory that he has got, what? Given to us. Oneness with him. This is how we get to know him. We get to know him through a revelation of our oneness with him, not through a revelation of what laws to, to live by, what principles to guide our daily living, et cetera, so forth. The law has its place. We uphold the law. We say the law is good. The law is good at what God designed the law to do to bring man to the end of himself. Paul says it very plainly in Galatians, that it was a tutor to bring us to the Messiah. And now that it has done its job, we no longer, Paul says it, live under the tutor. It's done its job. Now what is greater, what has a far surpassing glory is Jesus himself in us, one with him. So why does Jesus want us to see the union between the Father and the Son? Because he wants us to see Our union because it's the same. O righteous Father, although although the world has not known you, this is what it's all about. We're bookending, bookends. This is knowledge. Eternal life is knowing you, intimacy. The world doesn't know you. Yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And if I could add to that thought, he's saying they're going to get to know you. Because of what's going to happen in a few hours. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. What was he going to do? Oh, yeah. The cross and the resurrection is about to happen. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. Wow. How many of us really, really walk with the revelation of this oneness, this intimacy, this togetherness? Now, does this mean that we are gods? No. Did he say that? I certainly didn't say that. But that means that we are one with him, joined to him, being born of his very spirit. So here's the journey marker. That's our time, I'm sure, is expiring. Knowing God comes not from commandments, though we think that it doesn't. Knowing God comes not from commandments, but from the cross, by his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. That's what it really comes down to. Not from law, but from love. May the love with, you, with which you have loved me be in them. <clears throat> That's what's going to get them to know you, the love that you have for me in them. Knowing God comes not from regulations, principles, guiding truths, etc., but it comes from resurrected life now in us. Getting to know Him comes from Him being in us and us in Him. You say, well, what are the seven steps then to getting to know Him? I say step number one, believe that he has forgiven you of all your sins. You will never get to know him if you believe that he is holding your sins against you. Are you like the Apostle Paul and even myself, where you have come to know sin very, very well over the years by a fervent commitment to the law? I know that that was me. Are you able, like Paul and even myself, To so easily pick out the sins in other people's lives because we've become so knowledgeable about the commandments or our traditions or our principles or our rules? Are you like Paul and myself so eaten up with sin in us as a result of the knowledge of the law that it has produced sinning of all sorts, like Paul talks about? Are you like Paul and myself just simply tired and done with this false thinking that more laws equals more righteousness. As I read Paul saying in Romans seven, are you ready to truly get to know your God for who he truly is and for what he truly believes and thinks and knows about you? If so, like Paul, like myself, like anyone and everyone in this room who sees this and embraces this and around the globe that understands the forgiveness, we need to be set free from the law so that we can stop getting to know sin and start getting to know Jesus. Do you think Jesus is holding your sins against you in any way? If so, then you're under law, not under Jesus. Do you think the Father, will hold you accountable for your sins in any sort of way. If so, you're under law and not under Jesus, and you're never going to get to know your God. The absolute first step, as I just said, to getting to know God, the Lord your God, is by beginning to live under the truth, that the reality that all your sins... Every single last one of them are forever removed from the very mind of God. I remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Then and only then can we begin to see our union with Him. Your union with Him because you are, by new birth, spotless, clean, without wrinkle or stain or any such thing. His his spirit, his presence in you will only depart from you when he begins holding a sin against you. Is Jesus better than the first Adam? I think he is. His spirit will not depart for our sins have been taken away. You can now get to know him because he's near you. He's in you. The last screen just said. He is one with you all by his grace, all by his mercy, never by your ability to stop doing something bad or start doing something good. And this is why what I share here today would get me fired from many, many a church. Because this new covenant is how we actually get to know him the least of us to the greatest of us, however you want to organize that. It's nothing like the old that God gave to Moses. Why was that given? To drive us to him. So, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty jazzed about what Jesus is saying allows us to get to know him. But it wrestles, it fights, it wars. As Paul says, the spirit wars against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. We get to know him by getting to know what he's done for us and to us. So, with that being said, um, is there any thoughts or questions, or where do we go from here, or anything like that? From uh, this is really—I mean—he prays some more in the garden, but I don't really know if we have much detail of that. This chapter is definitely the clearest chapter of his prayer for what would happen as a result of what he does for us. In closing thoughts, yeah? Um, it's real easy to mistake um, total forgiveness and grace, oneness with God, with you know, you're totally forgiven, I remember your sins no more, to great. We'll um, that means whatever I do, Mm-hmm. Be forgiven, so I can do whatever mm-hmm. I want to do. Right. Um, that's not oneness. Yeah, that that attitude certainly doesn't come from that oneness. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. It is scandalous. The, the grace of God is scandalous. It absolutely is. Because if as soon as we start saying, "Well, but you know, not." We've got to put some brakes on this grace because it's going to get a little too greasy. It's going to get a little too fast. People are going to kind of take advantage of it. As soon as we start putting brakes on it, then we start watering down the truth to make it fit our thinking. I don't even mean big things that destroy marriages. I'm talking about little things. Yeah. Well, I did that to her, but it's forgiving. Yeah. Then you're making light of it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's right. And Paul says to the Galatians, he says, don't use this freedom for opportunity for the flesh. This isn't what this is about. You're missing the whole point. This is freedom from sin so that we can actually live true life, true living, not from laws, but from the life within. And it takes a while. It takes a lifetime for us to really discover another life within me that's joined himself to me. It's, it's not an overnight discovery. It's a continual Process. Amen. Anything else? Is it challenging to think of ourselves as one with the Father as the Son is one with the Father? Sure. So we look at the mirror, right? We see that guy or gal. All right. Anything else? Well, hopefully it's uh, encouraging and it's life-changing if we allow it to be. Father, we thank you for this truth um, that as one as you are with the Son, we are one with you. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can separate us from that. Nothing can remove that. And we ask that you would reveal that to us deeper and deeper, day by day. We love you. We thank you that you have given us a freedom to experience this. Help us, we pray. We depend on you. We need you to keep, up, to, to, to keep our minds from wandering back into a law-based system. It's what's so natural to us. Do this, be blessed. Do that, be cursed. But that's not life. That's not living by your life within not living out from this union, this oneness. So Father, we thank you so much as we get into next week with the, the arrest and the trials, and ultimately the crucifixion. May the love that you have for us be so real to us that it continues to transform our thinking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.